Well, welcome to Sound Engagement. Uh, this is your host, Peter Anderson. I'm so excited to have a new guest here. Um, I will be talking to Cynthia Myersberg, and she is a research psychologist at Harvard uh, University. She earned her PhD at Harvard from Harvard in 2010. Uh, her dissertation investigated the phenomenon of people thinking they had recovered memories from one or more past lives. I wish I would have known that because I probably would have asked you so many more questions about that. <laughs> so yeah. Cynthia is fascinated by how um, people come to adapt unusual beliefs. <clears throat> I'm talking a little bit about that today. She discussed her dissertation research on big picture science. She has also consulted and appeared as an expert on brainwashed episode of the Discovery Channel's Curiosity Series. She's really cool. More recently, while she was a research fellow at the Foundation of Individual Rights in Education, uh, I believe that's FIRE, right? With Greg? Yeah, we had Greg uh, on the podcast uh, a few days ago. Um, Cynthia conducted research on the uh, impact of trigger warnings. Uh, and currently, she's teaching for the Harvard Extension School, which is Continuing Education Division of Harvard, Harvard University. And this coming summer, she'll be teaching a course on pseudoscience and mental health uh for the harvard summer school so uh cynthia thank you so much for uh coming on the podcast I, usually brad joins us but brad was out uh this week and since we'll be talking lots of psych he's he's a pastor and he was just like you all take it so this looks like it's just the two of us today so um so I, I, the first thing I, I wanted to do, just uh, I read your wonderful article and I immediately contacted you right after. Uh, and the article, I linked it on the podcast. It's called Sticks and Stones, Coping with Offensive, Hurtful, Insensitive, and Otherwise Unwelcome Speech. And the article, I, I noticed it's not an apologetic per se for safe spaces, but um, for the individual who may be hearing offensive words to build a more secure sense of self. And those are so that they may not be so discouraged. That's kind of my, my interpretation. But but tell us what interested you in writing the article. Tell us a little bit about yourself and love to give you the floor, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so to tell you the truth, the idea to write the article wasn't mine. It was my co-author Bonnie's idea. So Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder, she's actually the director of high school outreach at FIRE. So uh, she, it was her idea. And when she talked to me, I was really excited about it. So we decided to go ahead and write it together. And uh, her, her book is actually coming out in September, Indoctrinate. But she suggested that this would actually be helpful. She said, you know, you're used to writing for academia. We should write an article that's for everybody. And she's right. I think it's really important to get um, scientific knowledge to the general public so they can use it to help themselves. And sometimes I might just do solo if that's okay. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was really your, yeah. And tell me a little bit about, cause you're, you're a professor at Harvard. What is it that you, I'm a lecturer. Um, <laughs> I'm a lecturer, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Tell us um, a little bit about what you're as much as you can, some of your concerns about, you know, the trigger warnings. I know it's gone in a very different direction, even in the past few years. What is, what is that? And what was your real concern about writing it? Yeah. So, so, okay. So for trigger warnings, uh, I think, uh, well, they're, they're controversial. So I guess I should start by explaining what a trigger warning is. So a trigger warning tells people how they might feel when they encounter certain kinds of information. The problem with a trigger warning, I think, is that we can't really label everything in the world. So they were initially conceived of uh, as a way to give people a fair heads up, like, hey, there's disturbing material and you might or might not want to read it. And that was particularly the case for uh, material related to violence that started out as a 
a well-intentioned thing to warn people. Uh, but the problem is that when you tell people how they might feel, then it gets a little trickier. I do think this disclosing to people what they're going to be exposed to makes sense. And if people are going to be taking a class about uh, uh, the Holocaust, they might be seeing uh, dead, dead bodies in piles, photographs of that. If people are taking a class on the civil rights movement, uh, they are likely to see the very famous photographs of Emmett Till that helped spark changes that our country needed. Uh, these are powerful images and information and, and people's stories. And these are powerful, important things. And I think it's right to disclose to people so they know what's coming, but it's not a good thing to avoid information. So the research I did uh, in collaboration with uh, other researchers, and I can tell you a little more about that, but the research I did investigated whether or not uh, trigger warnings actually do what they are supposed, you know, are hypothesized to do. Do they really um, make people uh, avoid material? Do they not make people avoid material? What do what do what do trigger warnings do? So and how how do they work? Yeah. So what was your findings? What was your uh, I mean, what did you find in those so in your research? People may appreciate a trigger warning, but it actually may make them more anxious. Mm. Reading disturbing material, even for people who likely qual uh, qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD, doesn't seem to it. it it doesn't get people to avoid the material, which is good, I think, academically. It was one of the big concerns of whether or not people would avoid material, but it also doesn't make them less upset. And I have, I'm sitting on some data I haven't published yet uh, that mm. indicates that people who self-describe in ways that are correlate with being high in empathy, that when they encounter a trigger warning, they sort of open up and get more upset, and people who are lower on empathy may disengage and be less emotionally involved, which I think didactically is not what you want. Mm. So, uh, I think it's really a good thing to disclose to people. I don't think people should I think it's respectful. You should disclose to people what, what they're going to be exposed to. On the other hand, I think telling people how they might feel might get people to read it in different ways and in a way that's not academically what you want. But the biggest problem with trigger warnings, if you ask me, is that we can't put a trigger warning on everything in the world. First of all, there's nothing wrong with being upset. If you're taking a class on um, and you're reading about what happened in Rwanda, and you're not upset, you're, there's probably something terribly wrong with you. It's fine to be upset. The problem is if things are so upsetting that you can't engage in the world. Now, for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, um, anything can be a trigger. It could be hearing the name of a city. It could be color. It can be the smell of a certain cologne. And everything in the world can't be labeled. So to give people the illusion that you can put a label on everything is not helpful, and it might be dangerous, I think. Mm. Also, anxiety tends to creep in and the more you avoid, the more you avoid. So telling people to avoid is probably not beneficial. I mean, from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective, what you want to do is exposure with response prevention. I think that for someone to have distress that is truly disabling and gets in the way, is it fair? Absolutely not. I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder in the first place isn't fair. It's usually because something terrible happened to someone that is in no way, shape or form their fault. I mean, that's, that's already unfair. The world isn't fair, unfortunately. But giving someone the illusion that they can avoid all the things that distress them is, I think, dangerous. I think it's better to teach people how to deal with um, triggers head on because you can't, you can't label everything in the world. 
That's fascinating. So I didn't know. Yeah, because um, I, I remember hearing about your article too a while ago, and it was about a year ago. I think it was like NPR, I believe, uh, put, it said something, and then I think it was published maybe in the Wall Street Journal, picked up by maybe both of those saying that trigger warnings. I didn't know that you were the one that did that research. So I, 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 I've been on a couple of the articles that have been done on trigger warnings. Uh, yeah. but there are other people who are also working in that area. Okay, so so you're not just solo famous, yeah. So okay. <laughs> right, darn it. <laughs> no, but what's really fascinating though about that? So so tell me from so if you predicted feelings, what these people would have. So so if I go into a lecture, I'm teaching on a class on um, the civil rights movement and Emmett Till, or or you know, say for example, Medgar Evers. I, I lived in Mississippi for like five years. So if I were to tell the class, okay, you may you may just you may see some disturbing things. That's one thing. But if I say to the class, you may get highly anxious. Like when you said, um, I start predicting their feelings. That's right. when it's almost like I'm, it's, I'm exasperating. Is that kind of what you're? I yeah. think so. so I think giving them information, like you will see images of, you know, of people who have been murdered. You will see that as part of, of the images I'm going to show you in class today um, because it is an important part of the story. Mm hmm. I think that's disclosure, putting it in the syllabus. Hey, there's going to be pictures and it's it's going to include this material. Saying how people are going to feel, I think exactly labeling how people are going to feel and, uh, and, and telling people how they're going to feel. This may uh, distress you. You may need to call the counseling office. You may need to step out of class. You may need to, I think that's where we run into problems. Fascinating, I think yeah. A wonderful idea to give people uh, a warning, right? But in terms of, well, disclosure. I think it's a wonderful thing to give people disclosure. I think it's a problem to tell people how they're gonna feel. Telling what, me yeah. this might make you anxious. Do you feel like it just applies for college students or do you think that applies for us as well? I mean, I've, I used to do work with a lot of kids and when um, kids would co-sleep co with their moms, for example, when I would talk to say little Billy <clears throat> and I would talk to him and we'll be playing Legos and I say, hey, you know, do you wanna sleep with mom or tell me a little bit about that? And he would say, no, not really. I just kind of worry about her because she's on the phone. She's crying with dad. And then I talked to mom and she would be like, no, he needs to because he's super anxious. But then I'll get like a different story from Billy and then I'll get like a completely different story from mom. And they would kind of. But the thing is, is that she would say to Billy, it's like, well, if you really, really get super scared, you could come inside my room just to let you know. But if you get really. But, you know, I just wanted to let you know that. And guess what? Little Billy would always walk inside of his, her room. But if she were just like. I need to sleep alone. And he would be like, okay, cool. And he actually kind of felt some relief in those cases too. <laughs> I mean, is that just, is that just true for college students? Is that true also for kids? Is it true for us as adults? I mean, when we start to kind of get in the area of kind of predicting how this person's going to feel, we get even more anxious, more yeah, depressed or whatnot. So I don't have data that speak to children. So I, I'm hesitant to extrapolate yeah. and generalize to children. Yeah. But I and college students are an interesting population, right? Because they sit right on the cusp between adulthood and childhood in a way, right? I mean, they are adolescents, their brains are still developing. Uh, we know that goes on until they're around like 25 or so. The prefrontal cortex is still uh, coming in. But I think that they more closely map onto adults. And I, I don't like to go beyond my data. I really, really don't like to go beyond my data. Yeah, yeah, but, sure. Uh, if you asked me to hypothesize and take my best guess, all these all these uh, horrible scientists, <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, I, 
I think we are better off disclosing to people information and letting them draw their own assessments on how they are going to feel. Interesting. And letting them deal with their own feelings. I, I don't think there's anything terribly wrong with being upset either. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Well, I could definitely tell you love the data there. I mean, because I'm, I'm probably, I like to go in different fields and probably get too, yeah, start to say things too quickly. I mean, one of the things I really loved about your essay is that how you address um, how words can hurt, but that we need to focus on resilience. I mean, resilience is one of those things that I'm actually teaching uh, today at child development, um, you know, the, the need for resilience for kids uh, and not just policing words. And you state that you can't, you don't control what other people do. You can only control what you do. I loved what you, you know, when you said that, so that how, so how do you handle and overcome rude, offensive, abhorrent, ignorant, insulting, and even hateful comments without letting it derail you emotionally? Question mark. To answer this question, let's turn to the science of psychology and review some helpful strategies for dealing with life's inevitable challenges, including speech you would rather not hear but can't avoid. Um, I, I just really love that sentence. I mean, would you mind telling us like the importance of resilience and why it's important, especially with uh, uh, with, with with us or the people that you interviewed? What what is that, and why is that so important for us? So. We, we fundamentally cannot control everything in the world, but we might have some uh, success in controlling how we react to the world. So one thing is to think of, of Maya Angelou's line of like, I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. Hmm. Or Viktor Frankl, you can think of Viktor Frankl, uh, that when we cannot change our circumstances, we must look to change ourselves. Well, there are things we can and can't control. And there are some uh, approaches we can take that will help us come out of challenging situations in better places. So for instance, um, I think that assuming that other people intend, uh, I think making assumptions about other people's intentions can be a problem. We need to look at that and think about fundamental attribution, that sort of thing. Now, are, are, we, uh, are we assuming that other people are trying to harm us when maybe they're not? I think the assumption of hurt. So there is research that indicates that if we think pain is intentionally inflicted, it hurts more. So looking at that assumption is probably valuable. Uh, another thing we can do is we can avoid uh, catastrophizing or work on catastrophizing. We may not be able to choose our feelings, but maybe we can choose what we do about our feelings. Maybe we can uh, investigate our feelings, put them on trial, you know, in the CBT sense of it, where we look at our assumptions and our feelings. You know, why do I feel this way? Well, Hmm. Is there some evidence that it could be some other way? Or, um, you know, am I catastrophizing? Am I thinking in black and white terms? Am I ruminating? What can I do about this? And then look at what we can do to change what we're doing so that we come out of it better. Well, no, that's uh, that's good. And I, I would eventually like to start talking to you a little bit about CBT. I mean, because the mm -hmm. CBT, we, you know, that's that's out of all the therapy models, tell me if I'm wrong, that's the one that probably has the most evidence to back it up out of most yeah. of them that have been actually researched. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, most psychotherapies, mo some of the evidence is pretty thin, whereas CBT has got a pretty high success rate as far as helping people. Um, and I wanted to combine that also, one of the things in your article, you talk about the need for locus of control or inner locus of control. And, um, you know, where Philip Zimbardo, I think he states that it's a belief that whether the outcomes of our actions are contingent to what we do, inner locus of control, or on events outside of our personal control. 
external locus control. I wrote this in a religious paper once um, at Harvard, actually. <laughs> you know, some I was fascinated with um, the Hebrew, the Hebraic thought of um, Jew, uh, uh, the Book of Proverbs, for example, actually often taught this kind of high inner locus of control where it's like we were responsible for our own actions. And then if you compare that with certain other religions or superstitions, for say, it was like kind of like looking at how the gods kind of intervened and, you know, basically caused us a lot of harm. And we have to, so it's kind of fascinating because that's actually been with us for a really long time. And people who are prone to a very high internal locus of control would, would take to, would be more prone to take more responsibility for themselves and tend to be less influenced by the opinions of people. Whereas other people with high outer locus, locus control can kind of like blame uh, sometimes the outside forces of their circumstances. Like my, my, my mother did this or my father did this. And therefore that's why I drink. For example, I see that a lot in my yeah. clinical experience. Um, I, I, now I know locus of control can be kind of controversial, you know, I mean, I've, uh, you know, there's some people that don't really buy into it, but it seems that what empowers us or many people is what we focus on, on what we can change. So going back on the whole, if I truly believe that these words are going to offend me and, you know, um, you know, then I, I guess it, they are going to do that. So I guess my question is, is, is there some validity of locus of control and responsibility and blame? And then, and how do we focus on that with, with, um, you know, how do we, how do we contextualize that? I suppose, um, especially in the case of like sensitive or to offensive words. And um, yeah, I'd love to, love to hear your work, uh, thoughts yeah. on that. So Julian Rotter uh, in the 1950s coined the term uh, locus of control. And an internal locus of control is that if you have, feel you have our control of circumstances and what happens, and external is if you uh, think outside forces are, are, are responsible. Um, while there are things that clearly we don't have a, a ability to change that are in, you know, there are times when things are external. In general, uh, believing that you have, having a more internal locus of control, feeling you have more control is beneficial and people are better able to, um, to act and to live their lives with an internal locus of control. That's, uh, that's really that's what I mean, as far as so she was the first one that coined that. I mean, is there Jillian? Sorry, Jillian. Oh, she, she that's I'm, okay. She, yeah, Jillian. Yeah, Julian. I mean, is Julian. Oh, Julian. Oh, sorry. Apologize. Yeah, yeah apologize. Um, yeah. I mean, would you talk about like how that self efficacy relates to that? I mean, if that makes like because you talked a little bit about how the self efficacy and the locus of control, how they kind of come together in that. I mean, I don't know if you wanted to elaborate on that. So to think about how to <laughs> best answer you. Um, so it's funny, you know, it's one of these, these expert things like, well, of course it lines up, but maybe it doesn't of course line up for everybody else in the world, right? So if you think that you can control what is happening, then you're gonna feel more like you can do things. You don't have uh, the same sort of learned helplessness, right? Like uh, Seligman's early work on learned helplessness. If you shock a dog a bunch of times, with inescapable shocks. After a while, it stops trying to escape and just lays there. And if you think you can't control what's going on in your life and you cannot do things and you cannot make changes, then it may lead to you sort of laying there in a sense, right? Emotionally, cognitively in your life. And that's not a good place for any of us. You want to be able to get up and do 
and to take in as much as you can. Now, there are things that are unjust and unfair. We don't live in a just world. Bad things happen, but you need to be able to get back up when they do in as much as you are able. And while it's not people's fault if they're unable to do this, we should be doing whatever we can to promote resilience and the ability to get back up when bad things happen as much as we possibly can for our children, for ourselves, for our community members. And there are ways we can do this. Um, looking at what we can change, looking at what we can do, um, looking at what thoughts are getting in our way. Um, right. Those are, those are strategies we can all employ. Yeah, no. And, and um, why do you think there's a, I mean, do you feel like there's a resilience against that today? I mean, I know I don't want to, I don't want you to generalize, but I mean, I mean, why, I guess they're, you know, talking to Greg last week, I mean, getting all the lawsuits that were, that they were getting over just the smallest little infractions. And it seems like, um, I wonder what your, what your um, hypothesis is about why we do feel, I mean, is it, is it just availability bias? Maybe we know too much. Is it really increasing or is it, is there, there's, there seem to be more of a resistance, I guess, toward this sense of resist, resiliency, cognitive behavioral therapy, this sense of like, no, I don't really want to have internal locus control. I'd rather blame. I mean, is there an attract? Why, why do you think there's maybe an attraction to not taking responsibility toward blame maybe, or toward contempt, or is there, is there a psychological attraction toward that? If again, it's not, Yeah. If that make because it seems to be more of a, a resistance against applying these things in our own personal lives, and the need, the the desire to be offended, I guess, seems to be kind of addicting uh, for many for many of us. And why do you think that is? I guess that's a that's a. I'm just throwing that question out. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably better asking Stephen Pinker that question, but um, let's see. Yeah. So. I think it's easier to point out what's wrong than it is to do something about it. And I think, uh, I think that we often talk about our feelings rather than our thoughts. And while feelings are important, if we want to solve problems, I think it's better that we, we discuss ideas and thoughts rather than feelings because feelings you can't dispute that's someone's feeling but ideas you can uh, you can discuss and amend and debate but I can't debate somebody's feelings so I think that's part of it if that makes any sense right so right, right. yeah I, I think that's probably one problem uh, I think I think things tend to, to swing, pendulum swing back and forth in terms of how we do things and where, where we focus our attention. Right now, I think it is hard for people to feel hopeful. We are facing climate change crisis. We are facing a pandemic. Uh, we, we have many challenges. Mm -hmm. To me, it's, uh, I think we have a moral obligation to try to do the best we can and fix what we can fix. Mm. And showing compassion to ourselves and to each other is probably a good place to start. 
doing what we can to make the world a more just place is important. Mm-hmm. I think that if we work for justice and compassion and kindness, then we probably will land in a better place. Mm. I don't want to blame uh, every generation, I think, points the finger at the at the one after it. And, <laughs> uh, I, and, I, think, uh, and I think it goes two directions, and I think that's okay. Um, but mm. I tend to focus on what can we be doing better? How can we do it better? And I think that understanding what, you know, understanding what are the things that we can each do to be more resilient and to lead better lives is going to do far more for us than criticizing the actions of others. I can't change everybody else, but maybe I can do the best I can in my own life and maybe in so doing help other people do better in theirs. I'm not Mm. sure. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting how you say that. I mean, there's a there's a form of couples therapy called um, uh, Pet C, which is pragmatic emotional therapy for couples by Brett Atkinson, and he talks about I'm a couples therapist primarily, and uh, he talks about how that you can ne- you will never improve your marriage if you focus on trying to change your partner. Um, you will only improve your marriage if you tr- if you really focus on changing yourself. And he's got evidence after evidence of that. And um, he's he's pretty, pretty effective, you know, form of therapy. And John Gottman's got a lot of that as well. I do a lot of Gottman therapy and he focuses on like the four horsemen and really trying to be mindful of my own criticism, you statements, replace those with I statements, contempt, replace that with needs and feelings. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a, yeah, I mean, there's something about that, especially with our media environment. It's so easy for me to to be so focused on everybody and everything where my anxiety kind of goes way up, you know, hundred percent. I, I, I like that a lot. There's a sense of mindfulness. I like what you're bringing up as well, because there's a sense of mindfulness of being aware of our own breath, aware of our own surroundings. And I've, I've noticed that mindfulness has really been very, very helpful. And I think, um, I think there is, there does seem to be this renewed interest in mindfulness today. That's it can, that can be very encouraging just to be aware of your own surroundings uh, rather than trying to change everything and everyone <laughs> that quite honestly, you can't, you know? And um, I mean, I wanted to, to, to move on to also, you, you brought up uh, the psychologist, Martin Seligman, and he developed, he developed a system called learned optimism and all the things that you're talking about right now. And I have our listeners here is that the importance of, um, okay. So trigger warnings, what we've covered so far uh, are things that, you know, that could, uh, not just trigger warnings, but things, words will hurt us. That's just the inevitable. So rather than focusing on the inevitable hurt, focusing on what we can control. And one of those things that could, that will encourage us is focusing on things like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and one the other thing that you had said was learned optimism. Um, or And what is, talk to me a little bit about what learned optimism is. I mean, I, I'll just go ahead and read this. I mean, you wrote that, Um, it's a way to challenge these types of automatic, it's a way to challenge automatic pessimistic thoughts or cognitive distortions and encourage more empowering mental habits. When something unfortunate happens to you, you resist the impulse to interpret it personally or permanently or pervasively. I love that because I've been guilty of that. And instead you come up with a mental response that is impersonal, impertinent and permanent and specific. Uh, for example, a person who is insulted by someone else can interpret the incident extremely pessimistically, 
I'm unlikable. I'll always be unlikable. This reminds me of me in, in college when I didn't feel like I could get a girlfriend. And this ruins everything. <laughs> or, or they might think the world's unfair to me. It always will be. And there are no places to escape from this all-encompassing unfairness. I don't know how to in, misinterpret, uh, reinterpret that as girlfriends, but I'll, I'll do it later. But I mean, each of them. <laughs> so tell, tell me a little bit about learned optimism. How is it different from CBT? And just briefly, and how, how is this helpful? How is this helpful for people? Maybe you could expand on that. Hi, Pam. Not so sure it is different. I mean, they're they're interrelated. So this is all builds in a way on, uh, but they want to, I don't know if Seligman would say this, but this is all related to uh, Tim Beck's depressive triad, right? So the negative view of the world leads to the negative view of uh, self, leads to the negative view of the future, and they all feed back on each other. So I'm not sure that they're in competition. I would say that they are, uh, I think, Cognitive behavioral therapy can use learned optimism to help people. When people are depressed, we have a lot of research that indicates that we have a depressive bias, where we interpret the negative bias, where we interpret things in negative ways. And uh, this, these negative ways of interpreting things are harmful to us. They get in our way. Um, they make it difficult for us to solve problems. They make it difficult for us to um, take to maintain our social relationships, they get in our way in terrible, terrible ways that undermine our happiness. And so if we can take on our negative bias, you know, if we can, if we can take that on and learn how to identify it and to question it and to reframe things and to think about things in different ways that leave open the opportunity for future happiness, then I think we will be in better places. In general, I often find myself advising students to think of their future selves, right? So current you is suffering. Future you will be happier if, and try to be kind to that future self. That's, that's one thing I tell people to do. But I think learned optimism is a good technique and, and boosts resilience. No, I like that. And, and two dangers that you you state that, and I think this is probably one of the things that we're seeing quite a bit is the whole dichotomous thinking, uh, either or, black or white, you know, good versus evil. Greg Lukianoff and uh, um, Lukianoff and then uh, Jonathan Haidt talk about that in their book, Coddling of the American Mind. Um, and then rumination, where we, we're just basically, you know, repeat the same thing over and over and over again in upsetting situations. Uh, uh, until we just make ourselves really unhappy, um, you know, which which often will lead, uh, you know, to a sense of mental health and serious uh, depression and anxiety. I don't know if you had anything more to add about that. But I mean, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I also would talk about maladaptive perfectionism. Um, mm. Get stuck. So students get stuck. I find my my students often when I was teaching Harvard undergrads, I would find that they would get stuck on what is the perfect career for me, and they would agonize and agonize and agonize over just rightness of it. And and the truth of the matter is, when you have bright, talented people, there's more than one thing they could do and be happy. And they needed to to set aside finding you know not, not letting the goal was to not let. Uh, perfect be the enemy of good. And that's a hard thing as well. Mm. Uh, but yes, I think the things you're talking about are exactly the problems. So black or white thinking where either, you know, it's all or nothing. There's either success or there is failure and there's no in between. Or um, 
catastrophizing. I did, mm -hmm. I did badly on this task. So that means all these terrible, horrible things will happen. And it's slippery slope reasoning. It's not logically sound, but people, it feels real. Uh, I think something that would be so beneficial if we taught our children that things can feel true without being true. We're not the best at telling them this. So it's perfectly possible for it to feel like the end of the world, for it to feel like the worst thing possible and not realize that, well, those feelings might not be true. Those, mm. the, the, it can feel true, but it, it, it you cannot be the truth. So for instance, um, when, when people have delusions, you know, and we'll go, you know, take an example from psychopathology, but when people have delusions, it might feel true that someone is, is, you know, the FBI is following. It might feel really, really true. That doesn't make it true. And those of us who are, you know, don't have psychopathology can still be prone to having these feelings that feel very, very true, but aren't true. Also mm -hmm. happens in anxiety. And if we can question those thoughts, you know, uh, tied up things like people who have survivor's guilt. And there's going to be a lot of people with survivor's guilt after this pandemic, I think. Um, questioning, mm -hmm. like it, it may feel true that it would be better if this, that, or the other thing had happened or that it's your fault. But the truth of the matter is, None of us are personally responsible. You know, not not you, not me, not any of your listeners. We aren't responsible for, you know, an illness coming. Mm -hmm. But I think there are going to be a lot of people struggling with that. Mm. No, that's good. Yeah. Well, I like I mean, because when you say like readjusting your own philosophical tradition, you know, and that's that's you know, as we're getting to the, you know, to talk about a purpose here or a telos, you know, that that's very important in our thinking as well because. If you don't really have that, it's going to be, you know, what is even true? Even when you, when you know, as, think of what Pilate says to Jesus, you know, what is truth? <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, I mean, that's a fascinating interchange between Pilate and Jesus in that little, in the book of John there. It's just like, that's uh, because if there is, there's, there's not a, there's not a purpose. We're going to, do we really even know the difference between distortion and reality? You know, and I like how you're saying, you know, feelings become in that sense, a fact for me, you know, and many, um, yeah, because uh, one of the things I'm noticing that we are kind of entering a phase where um, religion in particular is is maybe not quite as, I don't want to say popular, but I'll just, you know, you say it, whatever, you know, just it's it's not, it doesn't seem like it's quite as important for, um, and, I, and I don't think that's me reading into it. I mean, I look at the, you know, some, a lot of the, um, Gallup reports and whatnot seem to, you know, if, how important is religion for you? And it, it seems to be declining pretty significantly in the past 20 or 30 years. I guess my my question is for you, um, is there a correlation, do you think, um, you know, between just our this, this sense of you know, sadness that we're starting to see because we're talking about the need for cognitive behavioral therapy, but also, um, you know, I guess, how, how can I say this? Uh, is there a correlation with a with a lack of religion or a lack of philosophy with my increase of depression or anxiety, and um, and would a historic philosophy such as Stoicism, Buddhism, would that be sufficient for you to kind of you know um, to motivate me for some kind of change? I mean, yeah. So that that's my you know the need for philosophy, I suppose, undergirding our beliefs. So. I suspect that stoicism is sufficient for many people. I suspect it is in the sense of needing a philosophical base. I, however, do not, 
I think religious communities can provide a lot of support that is not necessarily specific to the to the given belief system. So, for instance, uh, religious communities often, uh, you know, help people help each other in a variety of ways and have a sense of community and belonging. And I think religious communities can be can be very beneficial to people. Uh, certainly, there are some articles on resilience that point to having a religious um, community as being something that can be protective. But do I think that it is the answer that everybody would benefit from it? I, I suspect um, people are different. I, I suspect it varies by person. Um, it is interesting that the number of people identifying uh, as Christian, I believe, has gone down significantly in the last 30 years as well in this country. Um, the number of people going to religious services weekly has gone down. And unfortunately, we can't tease out what is causal and what is not. Um, but gosh, I mean, that's such a hard question. And I'm not. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I do think that for many people, a philosophical set of values is sufficient for them to find meaning in life. However, I'm not so sure that I think that that is the truth for everybody. And I think whether it's through religion, whether it's through family, whether it's through using your, your talents and abilities, whether it's through helping others, whatever it is, I do think that we are better off, less depressed, happier, find life much better if we do things that give us meaning. So I would say to anyone who's looking to be happier, don't worry about being happier. Worry about doing something meaningful and valuable with your life. And happiness will be a, a pleasant side effect of doing that in all probability. Hmm. Well, yeah, and one of the things that you had stated is just taking action by changing yourself, changing the environment, and then attempting to change, and then attempting uh, yeah. to change the other person, you know? So um, yeah, no, it's, it, well, it's interesting. I struggle with that because I think I've, um, I, I interview people, you know, who are on the verge of depression, who have attempted suicide, stuff like that. And usually, yeah. I remember, I think a few years ago, I was interviewing some kid and he was just like, he had no telos, he had no purpose. And I was trying to help him purely on the psychology of why he shouldn't die. But he was just, he just looked at me and he was like, why the F, what, you know, what are you really giving me? And it really kind of astonished me right there because I felt like sometimes when you're that that close to you know depression, sometimes you have more of a reality to that life is life is pain, life is suffering, life is you know extremely very very difficult. And sometimes we give these, I guess, plaid answers, I suppose that just that just aren't sufficient. You know, when I'm in the depth of despair, and I mean. I think one of the things I like about how you're saying, you know, readjusting your philosophical traditions, because if we don't readjust that, when you're in the depth of despair, whatever's holding you up is is probably, it's going to shake on, if it's, not, if it's very fragile, it's not going to hold you up very much, very well. You know, and I realized this too, with the death of my own mother, like of cancer, like, you know, way back in 2000, you know, gosh, 2004. And I would give myself these very plaid answers, you know, about why why things happen, and they just weren't working for me at the time. 
And I get that a lot whenever my clients, they have to go through grief. Um, they have to readjust their philosophical tradition because I think sometimes when you're on something that's very fragile and then you try to transfer it to something else, it just, depending on what it is, it may, it may break on you. You know, it really might break on you. And so it's, it's, um, I like, you know, it's, I, I think, yeah, I like the fact that it's, you know, are you, how you ended the article there, like re, be open to readjusting your own philosophical tradition as well. If, because that's really where I think it all kind of boils down to in a lot of ways that mm -hmm. if you're so easily offended, for example, you know, I want to kind of bring the question back on the person. If I'm talking to them, are you comfortable with vulnerability? Like what, what is it about? Like what the Buddhists say, they start their first, you know, the premise, life is suffering. Is there something in you that you're super just uncomfortable with, with, with uh, like, what is offense? But my second question too, it's like, are you just uncomfortable with just something that is, that is, that you see as failure? And so do you have a, do you have an uncomfortable thing about failure? I, I, I'm just kind of dialoguing with you now. It's no real question. I just love to, you know, just, it's just kind of like to kind of turn the question around a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's often, it comes down to, you know, it seems to be a shaky philosophical tradition that, that maybe they're standing on myself included, if I get so hurt by all these things, or um, it's a good philosophical tradition, but I'm becoming very contemptuous and I'm becoming very judgy toward others because they're not up in my level per se. You know, I don't know if you just wanted to add anything to that. I just, I just, I just love talking about philosophical traditions and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it... I also lost my mother. Uh, I lost my mother 16 years ago to breast cancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was in graduate school, uh, my first year of graduate school, my grandmother who had come to live with me and my fiance before I started grad school, uh, she died. And then my second year, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. My third year, my mother and my remaining grandmother died in the same month. And then my fourth year of grad school, I, I got through it. And then my fiance died of a brain aneurysm. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so, yeah. so it was a very, I had a very difficult time of it in graduate school. So when you brought up grief, and yeah. like they have a very tenuous connection to holding on. Um, I have been there. Mm. It was hard. My life wiped out in uh, a spectacular way. Right. So, um, and there was nothing good about any of that. The current me at that time had to suffer. She had a very hard time. You know, mm. I had a terrible time. What I'm very grateful to my past self for is that, um, one, I had so many wonderful friends around me. I was really very lucky. After my fiance died, it was over a year before I had a day where the phone didn't ring with a friend calling to check on me. Mm. Having a robust social network is a great gift you can give yourself and give to others as being part of their social network. So that was very helpful to me. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, I lost, I felt, I felt that I had lost my future with my fiance and my past by losing my mother. It was a very hard time. Um, so I remember thinking that current me is suffering terribly, but I think mm. the door open for that future me. She might want you know, she might be able to be happy again. She might want to get up again. And so I kept getting out of bed. 
and I took a year off of grad school, but I stuck around in Cambridge and continued to teach and advise students. I gritted my teeth and I cried to my friends and I got through it. Hmm. Um, I, I told myself that all I had to do was leave it open for that future me. I just, I, my job right now was to put one foot ahead of the other and to give that future me a chance. And I wish I could reach back through time and hug that me who was suffering so terribly who did that because mm. here I am sitting uh, in, a, in a lovely home. I am married, I have a daughter, I have, I have a life that I think is really well worth having. Mm. But I only have that because that current me gritted her teeth and went through terrible suffering to mm. give this me the opportunity to get there. And mm. I'm so grateful. And Thank so you for, I, yeah. What I've yeah. said to people I know when they are suffering terribly is that it may be that you cannot possibly be happy right now and you mm. have to suffer. And that is true. But look at what you can do to leave the door open for your future self to maybe have a shot at being happy, to have a shot at having a meaningful life, to have a shot at something worth having and mm. grit your teeth and find a way to do that. Mm. Well, I love how you personalize that too. Yeah, no. And I think we're healers only by the healing that we've received. You know, I mean, I, I truly believe that. I mean, otherwise we're, you know, um, I love that. Thank you so much for just personalizing that because that makes, it's like everything that we just talked about actually makes even so much more sense on why, why you're passionate about what you're passionate about. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I would encourage our readers to really read that article. I think it's just fantastic. I mean, it was just great, you know, encouraging and I love the work that you're doing as far as, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, on, um, where you are and just working, um, telling us to, to bear through it. I don't think we're really hearing that. I think um, tell, telling people to take responsibility, not because I'm like looking down on you, but I've been there and I got, and that's what helped me through my time of pain. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, don't go the road of bitterness is what you're, you know, and that's just, you know, get up. Um, not, yeah, I just, yeah, I love that. Um, did you twice for a drink you didn't order in the first place? What's that? <laughs> bitterness is paying twice for a drink you didn't order in the first place. Yeah, right. Yeah. When you said drink and order, I was like, well, I do like my whiskey, but um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, those types of drinks, <laughs> all right. So. It's paying twice for something you didn't you didn't want and didn't ask for in the first place. Yeah. You didn't ask for the suffering, and then to to let it poison other other parts of your life. That's har horrible because mm. that's paying twice. You didn't ask for it in the first place, and now you're paying for it twice. You, had to, you know, so mm. yeah. There are things that hurt in life that that you just learn to carry with you, but. Right. But you're right. Bitterness is 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 terrible because yeah. it gets in the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I really thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I, I didn't know if you wanted to say any any parting words or anything, or tell anybody where they can find you. Where can we find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you um, do you publish regularly? I mean, where can we read some of your work? Well, uh, I I am on Twitter. Uh, I am not super active on Twitter, but that's changing some. So I am on Twitter, so you can find me there. Uh, you can also, uh, I mean, 
let's see where else can they that's probably the best place they can find me they can take my class if they want this summer uh nice. so yeah. anyone can take the class to harvard extension school yeah teaching introduction of clinical psychology and i will also be teaching a class on pseudoscience and mental health and i enjoy doing that and i am so grateful to you for having me on your podcast i yeah. really enjoyed it it was lovely yeah. talking with you yeah it really was thank you cynthia i really appreciate that and yeah well uh Thank you, everyone, for listening. I, I, we will see you all next week. I think Brad and I will be doing a book review um, on Cynical Theories, Chapter 2. That's what we'll be doing. Okay. So thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks, Cynthia.